to Survive, the story of Mira O'Connell's journey from victim to survivor. Episode 1, The Day That My Life Would Forever Change. This episode is brought to you by Warrior Workshops by Mira O'Connell, a half-day empowerment workshop where all participants will come away with a greater sense of power and control over their own personal safety and learn useful techniques for crime prevention as well as how to use self-defense tools. Learn more today by going to my website, www.thewilltosurvive.com. That's thewill2survive.com. Hi, this is Mira O'Connell, and I'm here to tell you about my story, a story about finding strength and courage that I never knew existed, and about resilience and how I reclaimed my life. During the summer of 2002, I was a newly divorced single mother of an almost four-year-old. I got approved to purchase my very first home, and it was very exciting to me. It served as a symbol of independence and also signified the beginning of a new chapter of my life. I began searching for homes in the Northeast Heights in middle-class neighborhoods of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was definitely shopping on a budget, but I was also very conscientious about buying a home in a safe neighborhood. I found what I thought was the perfect house. It was a three-bedroom, small, adobe-style house. It had a large backyard. The process to buy the home went smoothly, and by the end of June, I was closing on my new home. The first few weeks after move-in were pretty chaotic. They were still doing repairs on the home from the sale, and then I had all the normal move-in things that had to be done, like buy appliances. July 19th was a Friday, and it was a fairly normal day for me. My son was spending the night with his father, so I took advantage of the time alone. I walked to the park as I normally did, and then I went over to the Chinese food restaurant and ordered some takeout. I also had rented a movie earlier in the day. After I got home, I enjoyed my movie and dinner. I continued to do some unpacking and some laundry. When I was in the laundry room, I got a little bit of an uneasy feeling. I thought, I wonder if someone could crawl through this cat door. I leaned down and poked my head through it and I thought, I don't think anyone adult could get through this door. After I checked the cat door, I felt a little bit relieved and I went back to finish my movie. I started to get a little concerned because I hadn't taken some of the safety measures that I would have liked to after buying and moving into a new place. I had purchased a new lock set and also a locking chain to go on the front door, but my father hadn't had a chance to come by to set it up yet. So without any kind of electrical drill and just with a screwdriver in hand, I attempted to install the locking chain on the front door, but I was unable to get the screws into the door frame. Since it was July, it was fairly hot out. But I didn't want to leave any windows open because I'd recently read an article in the Albuquerque newspaper talking about sexual assaults were higher in the summertime because people left their windows open. For some reason, I can't recall why, I did not want to turn on the swamp cooler either because I remember thinking it was too loud. So I set up a box fan in the doorway to my bedroom before I went to bed, I went around and I checked all the windows and doors to make sure they were locked. Even though I did feel uncomfortable that evening, I was able to fall asleep. From what I could estimate, it was around 11.30 at night. 
The next thing I knew, a man was waking me up. He was on top of me. He was shining a light in my face, and he had some kind of mask on his face. He said something to me. I don't remember exactly what, but it was something like, don't say anything or don't say a word. Immediately, I became confused. I was almost like, was I dreaming? I had this tightness in my chest, and my voice just came out almost like a squeal. I told him to get the hell off of me, and I just kept repeating, get the hell off of me. At the same time, it began kicking and pushing him. I still had the covers on, and I was just kicking him through the covers to try to get him off of me. When I was fighting back with him, he said something to me. He said that he had a gun. I reached down and I felt a metal object pressed against my left chest with the barrel of the gun across my chest. I put the majority of my hand over the gun where the grip was and then I put just my left thumb underneath it and started trying to maneuver the barrel away from me. I think that was just my instincts trying to get the barrel away from me in case it went off during the struggle. While I was doing this, I was still continuing to kick him off and push him off of me. And at that point, he told me, Do you want to die? Did I want to die? Did I want my family to find me here in my bed dead? Or sexually assaulted and then dead? Something inside of me just snapped when he said that word. When my ex-husband and I were first married, before my son was born, we took almost a year of jujitsu. And when we did jujitsu, we did several maneuvers to get out of what is called the guard when someone's on top of you. And we did them over and over again. And it's what's called muscle memory. By continually doing it, it gets it ingrained in your muscles memory so that when you have to use it, it's automatic. So when the man said, do you want to die? I had this huge surge of adrenaline and my self-preservation and survival instincts kicked in as well. I don't remember thinking anything during the incident. I just remember acting. And those muscle memories kicked in. And so I took action. I did this maneuver that I didn't even know that I remembered. I posted my left foot. And then I took my right foot and I placed it on his hip socket. At the same time, I had my hand on the gun and I kicked him off of me with my foot on his socket up to his hip. And he flew off of me and off of the bed onto the floor. And when he did that, he lost his grip on the gun. And then I had the gun in my hand. Often in situations like this, people talk about how things seem to go in slow motion. But it was just the opposite for me. Everything seemed to speed up and go so quickly. The next thing I know, I'm on top of the bed. And I'm firing the gun at him. I fired three shots. He had fell against the wall and was on the ground. I said to him, You're going to have to kill me, you son of a bitch. I had never fired a handgun before, so the sound of the shots sounded different than what I thought it would. It sounded more like a cap gun. Pop, pop, pop. I remember thinking to myself, This guy didn't even bring a real gun. Maybe he just brought this gun for show. So I thought at that point I needed to get out of there. But before I ran out of my room, I did something that people always wondered why I did, and I can't really tell you exactly why. But I reached down, and I pulled his mask off of him. And there was this guy staring at me that I had never seen before. His hair was blonde or white, and it was sticking up, and his eyes were big. 
and he was looking at me with this shock like a deer in headlight. After I pulled the mask off the guy, I hightailed it out of there. As I ran out of my bedroom, I felt the hairs on the back of my neck standing up like he was right behind me. I ran down the hallway without looking back through my living room and got to my front door. The moment that I opened the deadbolt on my door was the happiest moment of my life. A great sense of relief came over me as I opened the door and ran outside. I knew that the fight might not be over, but I felt like I had a greater chance of winning at this point. I could scream for someone could come and help me. Once I got to the driveway, I began yelling at the top of my lungs that someone had broken into my house and had tried to rape me. I yelled it over and over again until I heard a voice. My neighbor from across the street was in his window, and he yelled to me to come over to their house so they could help me. I had never met them before because I had just moved in a few weeks earlier and didn't know any of my neighbors. But I felt like I had no choice at that point. I was in a t-shirt and underwear. I ran up to their front door and I had a gun in my hand. They opened the door and to this day did not know what they were thinking of letting some woman in their house they didn't know with a gun in her hand. But I was a little worried at first when it was just him at the door. Then his wife came around the corner. She told me she'd get me some shorts and a jacket. I felt relieved and so glad that they were helping me. The adrenaline was still pumping through my veins, and I was pretty animated when I was telling the man what had happened. I was gesturing with my hands, which I still had a gun in, so he told me to put the gun on the table. I saw that his wife was on the phone. She was calling 911. They requested to speak to me directly, and she handed me the phone. I began to tell the woman on the phone what had happened. I told her I was attacked at my house and then I ran across the street and now I was calling from my neighbor's house. She told me that she would be dispatching officers to my location. As I was on the phone with the police operator, I was looking out the glass door of my neighbor's front door. It was almost like I was watching a television set of a movie. It didn't seem like this was my life. It was like I was looking at someone else's life from outside. The operator asked me a lot of questions, and I tried to give her as much information and details as I could remember at that moment. I recounted to her about how the man had woken me up and had a gun, and I took the gun away from him, and then I told her that I shot at him. But then I said, but it wasn't a real gun. And as I was telling the story about what the things had happened, I said to her, it's a good thing it wasn't a real gun because someone could have gotten hurt. It was at that moment that the neighbor went over to the coffee table and looked down and said to me, It says Smith & Wesson right there, so that is a real gun. When he said that, my heart sank down into my stomach. I got very nervous. It all started coming into my brain very quickly, the reality of everything. I knew that I had shot the gun right at him, so I may have shot him. But I didn't remember seeing any trauma, any blood, anything like that. The whole time that I was speaking to the operator, I looked outside to see if I saw him. It began to worry me that I hadn't seen him run away or hadn't seen him leave or he hadn't chased after me. I thought he could have gone out the back door and then maybe I wouldn't have seen him. I relayed all that information to the operator that I hadn't actually seen him exit the house at this point. As we were speaking, 
I was a little nervous, and so was my neighbors, that maybe he would come over to the house and try to finish the job that he had started, but we never saw any sign of him. The operator told me I needed to stay on the line until the police officers showed up. One car arrived, and then a few minutes later, a second police car arrived. But they didn't park in front of the house. They parked just to the south of it. As I saw them walking up, I saw that one of the officers was a woman. The police officers came to the front door, and I began telling them about what had happened. They seemed to not have gotten a lot of the information I had already told the 911 operator. When I told them how I shot at the guy and that he may still be over at my house, they were very confused about whose house I was at, so I had to explain to them that this was my neighbor's house and I lived across the street. It was at that point that the officers went across the street to my house. We, of course, stayed at my neighbor's house, and they were gone for quite some time. After a while, the female officer came back over to the house where I was at, and she went to the coffee table and looked at the gun and then took all the bullets out of it. She put the bullets and the gun in a plastic bag and then walked outside and asked me to follow her. We went to the patrol car where she opened up the trunk and placed the bag with the gun inside. She then asked me to sit in the back seat of her car. While I was looking out the window of the police car, I saw that an ambulance pulled up. Paramedics went inside the house, and then they stayed in there for quite some time. And then they came out. Their gurney was empty, and they drove away. That made me very upset. I was worried about what was going to happen. How would the man get medical attention? I knew I had shot at him, and they said it was a real gun. So surely he needed some kind of medical attention. I asked the female officer about it. She seemed to not want to answer my question. And she even kind of put it off for a little bit of time. The lady cop eventually did tell me that I had shot the man and that he had passed away. I got very nervous after that. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I had never been in trouble with the law before. And other than minor traffic tickets, I had never had police contact. I was never placed in handcuffs, but I sat in the back of the police car for about three hours. The officer was very nice to me, and at one point I had to use the restroom, and she escorted me back into my neighbor's house and stood outside while I went to the restroom. As I spent the time in the car, I watched a mini-movie unfold in front of me in my neighborhood. It turned into a crime scene. Officers of all varieties showed up. Lots of uniformed officers. But then other officers up in regular clothes. They were taking photographs. Some of them were taking notes. They were going in and out of the house. A big white van arrived that was part of the police department's crime scene investigation unit. They put yellow tape all around my house and at both ends of the block. I saw as what I thought were probably detectives knocked on my neighbor's door. At this point, I'm not sure what time of the night it was, but it was well into the wee hours, maybe two or three in the morning. Many people didn't answer. Like my elderly neighbor that lived just to the south of me, I was a little concerned because I knew she was home. I thought, what if he broke into her house as well? But I later found out that she was just sleeping heavily and didn't hear the front door. The female officer came and got me and asked me to go to the crime van. I didn't have any shoes on, so she was very nice to shine the light on the asphalt as I walked with my bare feet. I went up the steps of the van. There was a woman in the van. She didn't look like a police officer. She had cargo pants and a camera around her neck. 
but I later found out that she was a field investigator. She said she needed to take photographs of me, and she had me turn around and took a photograph shot from each side of my body. I was a little self-conscious, but I was glad that it was a woman that was taking the pictures. The uniformed officer then escorted me back to her patrol car where I stayed for some period of time. I heard her on the phone with her husband telling him that she was not going to be home until late, and it made me think about my ex-husband who was going to be bringing my son this morning to my house. I asked her if I could call my ex-husband, but she said I wasn't allowed to call anyone at this point. The patrol officer went and got a female detective. She was a stereotypical female cop. She had short hair. She was brassy, direct, and to the point. She explained to me what was going to be happening over the next few hours. She also told me that I was unable to talk to anyone, but that she would make a courtesy call to my ex-husband so that he knew not to bring my son over here to the house. I didn't want him to see our house as a crime scene. The female detective left and went and called my ex-husband. I was left in the police car for some time longer and saw where a detective took the man who had let me into his house into an unmarked police car. I assumed they were doing some kind of interview with him. Finally, the female detective took me out of the police car. She told me she was going to take me down to the hospital and get a SANE exam. I found out that stood for Sexual Assault Nurse Exam. I hadn't actually been sexually assaulted. He hadn't actually gotten to that point. But she said it was important to collect all the forensic evidence in cases like this under my fingernails or see if there was any DNA on my body that would help with the case. She took me over to an unmarked police car that was her car, and she drove me to downtown Albuquerque. I was still really nervous at this point and uncertain about what was going to happen to me. As soon as we got in her car, she turned to me and she told me about how proud she was of me. She told me about a case that she had done in her earlier years where a mother of twins had been sexually assaulted right in front of her two children and how devastating it was on the woman and on the children. Her words gave me a great sense of relief. I began to realize that they were looking at me as a victim and they realized that I had protected myself and I had gone through a traumatic event. They weren't treating me like an offender. When we arrived at the Carrie Tingley Hospital where the SANE unit was located, there were two women there from the district attorney's office. They identified themselves as victims' advocates. They said that they go out on violent crimes and assist victims through the process. They said in a situation like this, I was a victim and so they would be with me throughout the rest of the process to help me and give me moral support. The nurse and the detective and I sat in a room and it was the first time that I really got to tell the story of what had happened. Because when the uniformed officers came, they asked me just a few questions before they went over to the other house. After I gave them a brief synopsis of what happened, the nurse began her examination. She identified every mark, every bruise on my body. She measured it, she photographed it, and then she collected hair. She collected anything that was underneath my nails. She also told me that I had to give up all the clothing that I was wearing as evidence. So I went into the other room and put it all in a brown bag and they gave me new clothing to wear. They also gave me a bag of toiletries, a comb, a toothbrush, the female detective told me that she was going to now take me to the main police station in downtown Albuquerque. 
The two victim advocate ladies said that they were going to buy me breakfast at McDonald's and bring it to the police station for me. When I got to the main police station, my father was there. He looked very upset and worried. I guess one of the detectives had called him. I think that that's probably one of the worst calls a parent could have. He later told me that it took him about 10 minutes to get to the police station, but he actually lives about 45 minutes away. My dad gave me a big bear hug, but I wasn't allowed to talk to him at all. I told him I would see him afterwards. They introduced me to a male detective. I guess he was actually the main detective and the female was just the assisting detective on this case. All three of us went back into an interview room and they tape recorded me and they also videotape recorded it. They read me my Miranda rights and I have to say is the freakiest thing to ever have happened to you. I got a little bit worried for just a moment. I thought maybe I should not talk to them. Maybe I should get an attorney. And then my reasoning and rationale and sensibility came to me and I said, I don't have anything to hide, so there's no reason for me to not talk to them and give them the information right now. Throughout the process, the police officers were very respectful to me. And I didn't take it personally, any of the things they were doing in the investigation. I knew that that was just what they had to do for their job. During the interview, the male detective asked me a bunch of questions. He was the main one who asked questions. He asked me about like what had happened and all the, the sequence of events. He also asked me like who I was dating at the time. I was dating this guy, and he was out of town. He actually lived in Santa Fe, but he was visiting some family members in Florida during this week. So they wanted to be able to call him and talk to him as well, so I gave them his number. A few things that stuck out in my mind from the interview were, he asked me, how did I know that the guy wanted to sexually assault me? And I said, well, you just know someone waking you up in the middle of the night with a mask on, and you know he's not there just to order Girl Scout cookies. One of the other things I remember that they wanted to know a lot of information about was if I knew the guy. When I pulled the mask off, I didn't recognize him. I had never seen him before that I remembered. They told me his name. They said they found his driver's license in his pants pocket, and they ran him through the registry and found out he was a registered sex offender. The male police detective told me that he wanted me to come back to the station in a few days and give another statement. He said often people who've experienced traumatic events will remember things after a few days. They also wanted to get a few references for me, I guess for like character witnesses. I gave them my old neighbor's name, an old co-worker's name. They also wanted my ex-husband's information because they said they were wanting to talk to him as well. After the interview, the two detectives walked me back to the lobby where my father was waiting to take me home. They both gave me their business cards and said to call with any questions. They then told me that I was free to go. As my father and I left the police station, the buildings of downtown Albuquerque began to glow with the dawning of a new day. As the warmth of the sun washed over me, a veil of numbness and disbelief began to settle into my soul and I realized that my life would never be the same. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my story. The Will to Survive is an 11-part series about how a traumatic event changed the course of my life and my road to recovery. If you'd like to learn more about my story, please visit my website at www.thewilltosurvive.com. That's the will number two survive.com. Thank you.